please God. I just knew that it was something to get away from. This is the OGTX Prepper Survivalist Show, and I'm your host, Cam O'Keefe. Now, y'all might be wondering why it sounds a little different tonight. You're going to find out. But first, please hit the subscribe and review buttons on your favorite podcast player, especially if you're listening to this podcast on iTunes. Here's how it works and why it's so important to us. iTunes uses analytics to count and forecast subscriptions to the podcasts. The more subscribers we have, the more they push the show. The more reviews we have, the more available the show becomes to new listeners. Share, like, and comment as often as you like. It's so important to us that we decide to give back a little something to our great listeners who leave us reviews on iTunes. At the end of every month, we will randomly pick 10 listeners who will receive an OGTX t-shirt and one listener who will receive an OGTX survival mystery box. It only takes a minute to leave a review, so go ahead and do that now. Now, for those of you who don't have iTunes on your phone, you can download the iTunes app for free right on your PC or Mac and leave us a review that way. Don't miss out on your chance to receive an OGTX gift from us. All you have to do is leave us a review on iTunes. Preppers, survivalists, off-gridders, homesteaders, and the like. Welcome to the OGTX Prepper Survivalist Show's first annual Halloween special. Tonight, we'll be taking a journey into the fringe of reality. What's real? What's myth? Are there real, live monsters out there? We've all heard the many tales of cryptid creatures roaming the earth. Are they fact or fiction? Are they just figments of an overactive imagination? Are they merely cautionary tales told to children to keep them safe from wandering too far from home? The Dogman akin to the werewolves of the days of old, skinwalkers, shape-shifting demons so terrifying Native American Indians won't mention by name, the monstrous boy child known as a Jersey Devil whose own mother cursed him on his birthday, Sasquatch, the Yeti, the Yowie, the Skunk Ape, the Hairy Man, Wood Ape, Booger, Orang Pendek, the Yeren, the Rougarou, all names that describe what we Americans call Bigfoot. There are literally hundreds of names from every corner of the earth describing the wild man of the woods. Now, we do not believe in such things, right? Or do we? Since the beginning of human history, people have been telling far-fetched stories and documenting impossible encounters with all sorts of terrifying creatures. From Mothman to Sasquatch, people from every continent, every religious faith, from scientists to farmers and presidents and world leaders to school teachers, sightings and encounters of the cryptic world are as widespread now as they were 200 years ago, 500 years ago, even a thousand years ago. My prepper brothers and sisters, tonight we step away from prepping and survival away from doomsday, and travel to a world of high strangeness. So grab a cup of joe, sit back, get comfortable, and read yourself for an oddly interesting and scary night of tall tales and cryptid encounters. What is going on with you over there tonight on Halloween? How you doing, Rhonda? I'm doing good. Not like we didn't see each other five minutes ago, but it sounds really <laughs> cool when I say it that way. It's like you just entered the <laughs> Well, you the can't studio. see me now. That's true. So I dug up some interesting news articles to get us in the mood. All right, cool. That's a great Set way to the start. Tone for the night. Yeah, let's do that. All right, so let's talk about Halloween decor. There's some really uh, spooky, true stories that revolve around Halloween decor that I bet you didn't know about. If there was a prize for the most morbid Halloween decoration in Delaware in 2005, it would have been given to the person that had a body hanging from their tree in the front yard. Nice. It would have beat out the fake witches, the skeletons, the jack-o'-lanterns around the neighborhood. For hours, people passed by this body hanging from the tree, admiring this gruesome Halloween decoration. I always wanted to use a mannequin hanging from the tree. That'd been really cool. Put blood dripping out of it. That'd be great. Well, this one was a little bit over the edge. Okay. It was a real body. What? It was ignored for hours, um, but it was discovered that this woman came from down the street. It wasn't even her house. She went to someone else's yard and committed suicide in their tree. Oh, my God. Isn't that horrible? On Halloween? like Yes, for, on in, Halloween morning. So, so she must have planned this. Actually, to like be she part did it overnight. It. I think so. Well, she definitely became famous. Wow. Another story was uh, around Halloween decorations. This one's a little bit um, 
scary, but also has a good ending. Okay. So there was a graveyard kit that was purchased from Kmart in 2012. What's a graveyard kit? Have you ever seen the decorations in someone's yard with headstones and, you know, RIP and that oh, type yeah, of thing? Oh, yeah, 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 gotcha. Okay, so this woman purchased a graveyard kit for her yard, and when she got home and opened it, there was a note inside that said, please help. It was a woman that pleaded for help because this toy factory in China was forcing their workers to work 15 hours a day, no pay, no days off, and they were being tortured and treated like slaves, not allowed to leave. This is a true story? This is a true story. So she turned it into the World Human Rights Organization. It exposed the the Chinese work factory, and they were all freed months later. Good for her. So th- that, that actually worked. It was kind of like a message in a bottle. Yeah. So it's creepy, but it turned out good. That is cool. I love that story. Not creepy, but very cool. It's creepy to think that shit like that really happens. Yeah, I mean, you're right. <laughs> um, okay, so here's another one for you. In 2012, a mailman went to a home to deliver a package. When he walked to the porch, there was an awesome Halloween decoration lying on the porch that he had to work his way around to get to the door. He left his package there and found out later that day that uh, this gentleman had came home the night before, had a heart attack on his porch, and passed away right there on the steps. And he thought it was part of the, the Halloween decorations? Stepped right over the guy to deliver <laughs> the package. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. <laughs> that's good. I like that one. Oh, that, I mean, it's that sad. Poor mailman. <laughs> you know, he had nightmares. I mean, look, about you that. know what? If you have to die, why not do it on your front porch on Halloween and be part of the festivities? I, right? <laughs> I, guess. I mean,. What what a, what a great ending to your life, right? I mean, it sucks that you had to die, but if you're going to die, that's a perfect way to do it. Definitely leaves an impression. Right. Love it. What else? So we're, we're thinking about all of these dead bodies that are Halloween decorations. It's kind of gruesome, but mm-hmm. here's, here's the other end of that story. In 2017, in mid-September, mind you, mid-September, the police in Greene County, Tennessee, received a panicked phone call from a man about a beheaded corpse in his neighbor's driveway. Now imagine this, looking out your window, seeing a corpse in your neighbor's driveway with no head. Oh my God. In the middle of September. Yeah, it's a little early Um, for Halloween. Well, police arrived on the scene to find that the owner had actually put out his creepy Halloween display a little too early. Yeah. The police actually posted on their Facebook do not call 911 reporting a dead body. And they <laughs> congratulated the owner on his great display. I think he should have got a ticket. <laughs> yeah, he should have got a ticket. He probably uh, probably really overdid it, too. You know, why do people... I mean, I love Halloween. Halloween is so much fun. Why do people start putting out Halloween decorations like two months early? Like, I've already seen Christmas decorations going well, up. Like, lights are going up now. And Christmas, it's only Halloween. Christmas is one thing, but horrifying people six weeks early? <laughs> That's not right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, cool. He probably got a ticket. So here's one for you. There's a teenager who's very close with her grandma, which is sweet. And she actually taught her grandma how to text, and they were avid texters back and forth. They stayed close by texting. Her grandma passed away weeks after her grandma's death. The granddaughter's grieving, mind you. She decides to send a text to her grandma's phone number saying, I miss you and I love you. That's nice. That's what a teenager would do, yeah. She would, she would do that, but yeah. she received a text back. Uh-oh. Text back said, I'm watching over you. You'll get through this. You'll what? be okay. What? So she received a text from beyond the grave. Can you imagine how that felt? Yeah, I don't so know if that's good or bad. How did, they, how did, did they, did she, was she able to you know, track it? I well, mean, obviously she was upset by the, by the uh, text back and reported it and turned out that someone else had, be, had already been reassigned the phone number. And responded to the girl in place of her grandmother. Oh, that's just not right. <laughs> that's that is so wrong in so many different ways. I bet she was. Uh, Did they at least apologize? I mean, I, wow. I hope so. All right, here's here's a horrible one. These are going to get worse as we go along. Okay. Have you heard of the bumblebee tuna factory? No, but I'm assuming it's where they make bumblebee tuna. All right. Well, I have to mention uh, Ace Ventura because bumblebee tuna is a big part of the movie. Uh, <laughs> I, do, I don't think I've seen it. In. Uh, 2012, a maintenance worker was repairing the inside of the giant oven at the Bumblebee Foods factory. 
He was so far inside this oven that his coworkers didn't realize he was in there still wrapping up his repairs, and they didn't check. Um, they started loading in 12,000 pounds of tuna oh into boy. this oven, and they turned it on. Uh-oh. So this poor guy was cooked to death. He didn't scream out? He, didn't, he couldn't tell anybody he was in there? I'm assuming the size of the oven made it a pretty loud oven. you got to be kidding me. I don't know how they could have shoveled in 12,000 pounds of tuna so fast that this guy didn't realize what was happening, but I don't know what happened, but it's... <laughs> I gotta call bullshit. I mean, wouldn't we have heard uh, that? Wouldn't that have been on the, the news? It's in the Los Angeles Times. It must be true. Is it really? Is it? It's in the newspaper. <laughs> uh, the family was. Uh, the company was actually ordered to pay six million dollars to the family. Oh my god, that is horrible! And they were eating bumblebee tuna again. Me either. How did they? F- I-, I can't even imagine the scene when they found him. Mm-mm. Nope. That's uh, extra flavoring. Should have uh, sold that as a special. That's bad. Shouldn't have said that. Too soon? That's disgusting. <laughs> that, that's, don't post that. <laughs> what else you got there? Do we want to mention the Candyman killer or the killer clowns? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. You got anything on the killer clown? I, those things scare the crap out of me. Those people that run around in those killer clown costumes, they do. They scare the crap out of me. And, I, and it's unfortunate because if they tried that kind of shit around here, they get shot in most places. I don't know, but... I'm telling you, if you stand at the edge of the woods in Texas with a clown costume on and try to stare down one of these Texans, oh, you're no. not going to make it out. Mm-hmm. No, you're getting shot. That's so this all this it. started, um, it really became a thing around 2016 and supposedly was inspired by the Stephen King's Pennywise character. Oh, I didn't know that. But it's been taken to a different level. Yeah. These guys dress up like clowns and terrorize people. Sometimes they just stand and stare, but other times they actually chase people. Yeah, they charge them. They chase them. Yep. There's YouTube videos on this, and it's terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying to see. Well, this news article has a happy ending. Okay. (laughs) This craze with the clowns, the killer clown craze, as they call it. Yep. Started over here in America, but it made its way across the pond over to the UK. Oh, I didn't know that. So there's people over there doing it now. And guess what? Somebody got shot. UK don't put up with it. This (laughs) guy was uh, the first man to be jailed for terrorizing someone dressed as a clown. Okay, good. (laughs) Nice. Awesome. That is awesome. That's a good story. Not very scary, but good story. All right, here's a bad story. What'd you got? This one, I'm not even sure if I want to include it, but I'm going to tell it anyway. So every Halloween... We hear about children, you know, being given sweets with needles in them, broken glass, razor blades. Oh, yeah. We've probably all had to sit there as a child and pick through our candy, searching for things like that in our candy. Yeah, our generation definitely had to do that. Mm-hmm. We couldn't even eat any of the fruit that was given to us. And we get, you know, people give you apples and, you know, things like that. And our parents wouldn't let us eat that at all. They took it from us. Well, according to this article, only one child has ever actually been killed by their tainted Halloween candy. Really? Yes. So it's, it's more of an urban legend then. According to this article, hmm. I don't know whether I believe that, but this poor little boy was eating his pixie sticks, which is one of my favorite candies. Mm-hmm. It turned out to be packed with enough cyanide to kill two grown people. Damn. Do you want to know who the culprit was? They caught this guy. Oh, they caught him. They nailed him for it. Yeah. It was his father. Damn. His own father laced his candy with cyanide so that he can claim the life insurance money to pay off his debts. Oh, I sure hope he got a spanking. I mean, a big well, one. He did not get what he deserved. He was in prison for nine years and ended up getting the lethal injection. <laughs> cool. You got anything else over there? I got the last one. one. This one? one is so horrifying. Okay. Um, to this day, no one really knows what happened to this 21-year-old girl who went missing in L.A. in 2013. She was last seen acting really strangely in a in an elevator at the Cecil Hotel, which is notorious for murders, suicides, and all kinds of paranormal activity. The footage that was released by the police caught this girl on camera acting very erratically in an elevator, pressing buttons, uh, running in and out of the elevator, just acting very nervous and scared. She appeared to be trying to run away from someone, but no one else is ever seen in the video. Mm. Shortly thereafter, the residents of the hotel started complaining about strange-tasting water. It was coming out black out of the faucets while they were using the shower, brushing their teeth, and, you know, their drinking water started tasting bad. So this is kind of paranormal. 
cool. It is. So um, upon investigation, they found this girl in a very strange place. Uh-oh. So on the roof of the hotel where the door was locked, mind you, there was a water tank that was covered. Guess what they found inside? I'm assuming they found her body. They found this young girl floating in that water tank for 19 days. Ugh, no way. People had been drinking that for 19 days. <sighs> they ruled her death an accident because what? the tank was covered. She didn't. There's no way she could have fallen in it. The roof door was even locked. How the hell did she even get up there? Wow. You said the door was I'm locked. I'm thinking whoever did it had a key to that door. This case was so creepy, it actually became part of the uh, American Horror Story season for the episode called Hotel. Nice. I love the uh, mm-hmm. spooktacular newscast you put on tonight. That was pretty cool. Okay, well, let's get to some stories in. What do, you, do you want to start with one or do you want me to start with one? Why don't you go ahead and start first? Okay. So tonight, we I'm going to start with... Uh, the Jersey Devil. Now, many of us have heard the tales of the Jersey Devil, but do you know the story behind the Jersey Devil? Listen to this. Legend has it that in 1735, a Pines resident known as Mother Leeds found herself pregnant for the 13th time. Leeds is the name of one of New Jersey's earliest settlers, and many descendants of the Leeds family can still be found throughout New Jersey to this day. Mother Leeds was not living a wealthy lifestyle by no means. Her husband was a drunkard who made few efforts to provide for his family and the 12 children. Reaching the point of absolute exasperation upon learning of her 13th child, she raised her hands to the heavens and proclaimed, let this one be a devil. Mother Leeds went into labor a few months later on a tumultuous stormy night, no longer mindful of the curse she had uttered previously regarding her unborn child. Her children and husband huddled together in one room of their Leeds Point home while local midwives gathered to deliver the baby in another. By all accounts, the birth went routinely, and the 13th Leeds child was a seemingly normal baby boy. Within minutes, however, Mother Leeds' unholy wish of months before began to come to fruition. The baby started to change, metamorph, right before her very eyes. Within moments, it transformed from a beautiful newborn baby into a hideous creature unlike anything the world has ever seen. The wailing infant began growling at an incredible rate. It sprouted horns from the tops of its head and talon-like claws tore through the tips of its fingers. Leathery bat-like wings unfurled from its back and hair and feathers sprouted all over the child's body. Its eyes began glowing bright red as they grew larger in the monster's gnarled and snarled face. The creature savagely attacked its own mother, killing her, then turned its attention to the rest of the horrified onlookers who witnessed its temptuous transformation. It flew at them, clawing and biting, voicing unearthly shrieks the entire time. It tore the midwives limb from limb, maiming some and killing others. The monster then knocked down the door to the next room where its own father and siblings cowered in fear and attacked them all, killing as many as it could. Those who survived to tell the tale then watched in horror as the rotten beast sprinted to the chimney and flew up it, destroying it on its way and leaving a pile of rubble in its wake. The creature then made its escape into the darkness and desolation of the Pine Barrens, where it has lived ever since. To this day, the creature, known varyingly as the Leeds Devil and the Jersey Devil, claims the Pine Barrens as its own and terrorizes anyone who are unfortunate enough to encounter it. In the 18th and 19th centuries, the Jersey Devil was spotted sporadically throughout the Pine Barrens region, frightening local residents and any of those brave enough to traverse the vast, undeveloped expanses of New Jersey's southern reaches. Unearthly whales were often reported emanating from the dark forest and swampy bogs and the slaughter of domesticated animals would invariably be attributed to the Phantom of the Pines. Over the years, the legend of the Leeds Devil grew, occasionally even overstepping the boundaries of its rural Pine Barrens haunt to terrorize local towns and cities. The most infamous of these incidents occurred during the week of January 16th through 23rd, 1909. Early in the week, reports started emerging from all across the Delaware Valley that strange tracks were being found in the snow. The mysterious footprints went over and under fences, through fields and backyards, and across the rooftops of houses. They were even reported in the large cities of Camden and Philadelphia. 
Panic immediately began to spread and posses formed in more than one town. Fear and intrigue grew even greater when it was reported that bloodhounds refused to follow the unidentified creature's trail in Hammondson. Schools closed or suffered low attendance throughout Lower New Jersey and in Philadelphia. Mills in the Pine Barrens were forced to close when workers refused to leave their homes and travel through the woods to get to their jobs. Eyewitnesses spotted the beast in Camden and in Bristol, Pennsylvania, and in both cities police fired on it but did not manage to bring it down. A few days later, it reappeared in Camden, attacking a late-night meeting of Social Club and then flying away. Earlier that day, it had appeared in Haddon Heights, terrorizing a trolley car full of passengers before flying away. Witnesses claimed that it looked like a large flying kangaroo. Another trolley car full of people saw it in Burlington when it scurried across the tracks in front of their car. In West Collingswood, it appeared on the roof of a house and was described as an ostrich-like creature. Firemen turned their hoses upon it, but it attacked them and then flew away. The entire week, people reported that their livestock, particularly their chickens, were being slaughtered. This was most widespread in the towns of Bridgeton and Millville. The creature reappeared later in the week in Camden, where a local woman found the beast attempting to eat her dog. She hit it with a broomstick, and it flew away. That is horrifying. Yeah. So, the Jersey Devil. An unbelievable story. But then here we have this week in 1909 where all of these different towns were seeing something. Police were shooting at something. Firemen were shooting hoses at it. People were being attacked by it, by something. That's even worse that a mother cursed her own child. I never knew that part. Yeah, well, that's, that's the story. I mean, who knows? But yeah, it's a, it's a very famous story. And uh, in New Jersey, we all, we all know it. I mean, remember, I, I grew up there for a little while. And... Um, it's it's a known story. So you know, I, I never knew that story. I only knew the video game before. <laughs> I didn't know there was a video game. Yeah. <laughs> it's very creepy. It is. It's very, very creepy. Um, you know, I have a friend of mine. I won't name his name. He's probably listening. He has an older brother who, back when we were in high school, his older brother, he told me the story. His older brother had come home from working. He was working at a restaurant very late at night, and he had come running into the house, woke everybody up. He was very excited. Uh, he was upset, crying, you know, just distraught. And apparently, he was confronted by something on his way home. He had come down this, this hill, this long road, um, forest on both sides. And way down at the bottom of the hill, there was a car sitting in the middle of the road. He can just see it with, with the, the moonlight, with the nightlight. He can still see it, but its lights were off. And as he got a few hundred yards away from it, the car turned on and drove away. Well, when he got down there, his car apparently stopped. And turned off like everything, nothing worked. He then saw something come out of the woods. I remember something about red eyes or glowing eyes or something like that and started coming towards the car. And then for some reason, turned around and went away. And at that time, the car turned back on and he was able to start driving again. And he absolutely believed that this happened to him. Was it the Jersey Devil? I don't know. But, you know, maybe he was drunk or high on something. I have no idea. But he, this definitely happened for sure. He you know, who so knows? he was pretty sh shaken. He was uh, very, very shaken up. Yeah, the whole house woke up. My my friend wow. told me about it the next morning. He's like, "Man, you got to hear what happened last night." He told me the whole story. I, I got chills. It's crazy. Yeah. yeah. So that's my uh, that's my Jersey Devil story. Um, obviously not my story, but that's mine for tonight. What do you got? You got something that's, over there? That's a good one. I have a mysterious story to tell. This is the mysterious case of the Dyatlov Pass from 1959. I love this story. It's very disturbing. I have followed it many, many times on many situations. I just love listening to it. It's, it is just the weirdest, creepiest thing. So that this happened in uh, uh, Russia, right? In Siberia. It, it did happen in yeah. Russia. Yeah, right in the dead of winter. So Dyatlov Pass is named after the hiker that led the expedition of the students that trekked up a mountainside in Russia, and like I said, right in the dead of winter in 1959, the fateful night in question. Nine college students perished under mysterious circumstances that still baffle investigators even today, 61 years later. Wow. Um, the incident happened on the east shoulder of the Mount Colat Shackle, which means dead mountain. It's given that name by the indigenous Mansi people that live in that area. Uh, the Mansi are reindeer herders that live in the area. The mountain pass where the incident occurred has since been named Dyatlov Pass after the leader of the group. And to this day, this incident is still left unresolved. 
10 college students set out in late January 1959 to ski about 200 miles over 16 days time, expected to return by February 12th. They were all very experienced, long distance skiers. They had done ski tours and mountaineering training. After just a few days of trekking through the snow, one of those 10 students turned back after suffering from sciatica pain, he wasn't able to continue. So this very fortunate hiker was the only survivor from that group that set out on that expedition. And to die at such an altitude in the coldest part of the winter is not uncommon, but the level of these hikers' experience, the knowledge and preparations that they had made for the trip, combined with the bizarre discoveries made by the search team, has boggled the minds of the investigators for years. There's journal records of the hikers up through February 1st when they set up their camp on the slope of the mountain in a spot that experienced hikers in that area have said is a very odd place to make camp. It's possible they made that decision because they were losing daylight. Um, Their journals shows that they had dinner that night and were all in good spirits based on the last entries made in their personal journals and the trip journal. When the team didn't arrive back by February 12th, as they were expected, no one was immediately concerned because it was treacherous terrain that could have slowed their progress. Their families did become worried when they had not heard anything by February 20th. A search party was sent out the following day. The rescuers came across the tent a few days later, but the scene that they found left everyone with more questions than answers. It took about uh, six days for those searchers to locate the campsite of the hiking ski team and what they found just brought more confusion and inspired many theories around what happened that night on the side of the mountain. The tent was found with the entrance facing south and the north part was covered with about eight inches of snow. The snow appeared to come from the blowing wind and not a sudden avalanche. There was also a flashlight found on the tent that was laying on top of snow. So that was kind of odd. Mm. The tent had been cut from the inside and the entrance was still fastened and closed. The hikers had to have escaped the tent through the cuts made on the side. Most of the belongings of the hikers were found inside the tent, including their boots that were lined up against the side. Next, they found footprints leading downhill, footprints of people in socks, footprints of people barefoot, and even one set that only had one shoe on. Mind you, the temperature was negative 30 Celsius or negative 22 Fahrenheit. Strangely, all the footprints leading away from the tent and towards the woods were consistent with individuals who were walking at a normal pace, not fleeing in a state of panic. The first body was found under a tree which had broken branches about five meters up it from someone climbing to use it for a lookout. Next to the tree were the remains of a small campfire. The first student they found had burns on his head and his foot, minor cuts and bruises, dried blood on his face, and a gray foam substance on his cheeks, indicating pulmonary edema. His cause of death was determined to be hypothermia. Nearby, they found the second body, who had similar cuts and bruises, was missing the tip of his nose. He also had burns on his hands, and a chunk of his knuckle was missing, which was later found in his mouth. His cause of death was hypothermia. The leader of the group was found about 300 meters up the slope back towards the tent. He had minor cuts and bruises as well, a missing tooth and blood on his lips. His cause of death, hypothermia. His watch had stopped at 5.31 a.m. The fourth hiker was found face down about 630 meters up the hill from that cedar tree. She had minor cuts and bruises and a large blunt force bruise of unknown origin, and her cause of death was ruled hypothermia. The fifth hiker wasn't found until March 5th, sometime later, wearing one boot, consistent with the footprints, with similar minor wounds and a fractured skull. The fractured skull, however, was not serious enough to cause death. His death was ruled to be hypothermia. The last four hikers were not found until two months later when the snow began to thaw. Their bodies were revealed in a six-foot ravine that was found deeper in the forest. Hiker number six was found to have died of hypothermia, but had a broken nose, was missing his eyes and the soft tissue around them. His clothes were found at a later time to have traces of radioactivity. He, along with hiker number seven, the most experienced hiker of the group, were embraced, likely trying to preserve body heat. He died from a crushed chest and had a pen and paper in his hand, but was never able to write his message. Hiker number eight was found nearby, who died from an impact to the skull and also had a crushing injury to the chest. Her eyes, tongue, and soft tissue were missing. She had blood inside her stomach 
and radioactivity on her clothes. So here's the facts. Although the corpses showed no signs of struggle, two victims had fractured skulls, two had broken ribs, and some were missing parts of their faces or soft tissues. Six of the trained and experienced hikers died of hypothermia, and three of fatal injuries. The victims had died six to eight hours after their last meal. A doctor stated that these fatal injuries could not have been caused by another human being because the force of the blows had been too strong and no soft tissue had been damaged. So how is it that the autopsies failed to find any evidence of foul play with all of these strange details? This case was ruled closed. The findings were archived as secret and classified, as was most uh, cases in the Soviet Union at that time. Why did experienced skiers leave the safety of their tent? Was it organized or not? They weren't fleeing in panic, but they weren't dressed. There's many theories about what happened to this young group of hikers that night. Those closest to the tragedy have blamed the deaths on some nefarious plot of the military as well because the group likely saw something they shouldn't have seen and then were forced to fabricate a scene that would confuse investigators and left there to die. There was a photograph found taken by one of the hikers the day before they died that suggests or actually proves that they were not alone in the forest. There was a distinct image of a dark human-like figure in the background between the trees. So the figure between the trees leads people to turn to the theory of a yeti, which is a Sasquatch-like creature. This theory is given weight by the local legends among the Mansi people who believe in a creature known as the mink, which is a formidable forest beast who's protected by the gods. Locals in the area have also witnessed yellow orbs of light that same night, which were supposedly confirmed by meteorologists. This supports the theory of the Russian military testing, but it also brings on the theory of UFOs. So some people believe that UFOs descended from the sky and scared the hikers from their tent and contaminated them with radiation. So that's just some of the theories. There's many more out there. This case has drawn so much attention over the years with curious people visiting the area and questioning the circumstances. This case actually was reopened in 2019 for further investigation at a federal level. On July 11, 2020, get this, the deputy head of the Urals Federal District, which is the Mountain District, and the director of the prosecutor's general office announced an avalanche to be the official cause of death for the Dyatlov group in 1959. However, there's plenty of evidence against that because an avalanche seems very unlikely due to the slope of the mountain they were on, the small amount of snow found on the tent, and this not being an avalanche-prone area. Also, the footprints would have been wiped away by an avalanche, and the group would never have been able to outrun an avalanche. What do you think about that? Yeah, no, it was definitely not an avalanche. I've seen the pictures. Uh, That is not even possible. It would have covered up their footprints. It would have destroyed trees, and it would have totally destroyed their their tent. Well, this was just a few months ago that that was ruled. Yeah, and that's what you would expect from from the Russian authorities. From a government cover-up. Yeah, for sure. Uh, from any any government cover-up, for sure. But I believe it was the Yeti. That's what I think. Now, I do remember seeing the pictures. Uh, there's lots and lots of pictures of this outing, this adventure. There was uh, pictures of, of them celebrating, happy, uh, traveling, going through, the, um, going through the, the forest, setting up their tent, all kinds of pictures. One of the very last pictures was that uh, one you talked about with that creature or being or something that they saw in the woods. Basically, this picture was looking down a path, completely snow-covered. Snow was everywhere, and then trees on both sides. And at the very end of this thing, about 50 feet away or so, um, there was a black-looking humanoid creature standing there. Uh, some people say that it was somebody who was following them. It was a creature who was following them. It was something. It was it was the actual attacker themselves. It's very clear this is a creature or human standing here. It is not a tree. <laughs> oh, it's absolutely clear. Clear as, clear as day. Look it up. It's the, the pictures have been out for you for many years. I wish Thinker Thunker would do this one. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> uh, and then the very last pictures on their roll of film were very, very weird. They were of the sky with these sort of light globes or balls streaking around, uh, which is why some people were thinking about the, the missile theory. I believe that if a missile came down and hit them or whatever, their bodies would have been a much worse damage than that. And there would have been uh, missile damage on the ground. The snow would have been messed exactly. up. I'm thinking that somebody attacked them. Somebody or something attacked these people. That's what I believe. Uh, I'm leaning towards Yeti because I believe in Bigfoot. 
and uh, why not? You know, there was no, there was no other animal, uh, no other evidence of animals biting them. Uh, there was no teeth marks or, or rip marks, nothing like that. So you have to rule that part out. Uh, the radiation on their clothing, I don't know anything about that. I've never heard that before. Now, one thing that was very interesting is that when the first team got up there to the location, the very first time to to you know to find them, they found their gear. What they found in their gear was interesting, and I I could be a little bit wrong on this, but it was it was a piece of military uh, issued clothing or a boot or uh, mm-hmm. uh, it was something like that. None of these hikers had that had that equipment, but they definitely found one, not two, but just one of this item with their belongings. So how would they have gotten it? Where did it come from? Where was the military there before the search teams got there? We don't know. But yeah, great story. Great, great story. And if you guys are interested in this, there's lots of stuff on it. You should get out there and look at it. There are books and there's videos and there's movies and shows. There's everything on this. Okay, guys, we are going to West Virginia, Point Pleasant, West Virginia, to be exact. And we're going to be talking about the Mothman of Point Pleasant, West Virginia. In 2002, Richard Gere starred in a horror film about the West Virginia town that experienced a strange number of supernatural sightings leading up to the collapsing of the local bridge. This movie was called The Mothman Prophecies. The film was based on disturbing, real, otherworldly occurrences that took place in Point Pleasant, West Virginia from 1966 to 1967. Still to this day, the numerous strange events of sightings of giant moth-like visitors go unexplained. Here is the actual story that influenced the film and the legend. On December 15, 1967, the Silver Bridge, a suspension bridge connecting Point Pleasant, West Virginia and Ohio, collapsed, killing 46 people. Spanning the Ohio River, this Ibar chain bridge built in 1928 met its fate during rush hour as people were turning home from work and families were going into town to begin their Christmas shopping. What caused this well-traveled bridge to collapse wasn't a mystery. A defect in one of the Ibar links caused a crack to form which led to the catastrophe. The real mystery was the appearance of a strange visitor sighted several times by the citizens of Point Pleasant during the months leading up to the tragedy. This strange visitor was known as the Mothman. The Mothman first made it into news on November 16, 1966, when the Point Pleasant Register reported couples see man-sized bird, creature, something. Point Pleasant resident Steve and Mary Maletti, along with Roger and Linda Scarberry, were driving near the McClinty Wildlife Reserve on the West Virginia Route 62 when they crested a hill and came face to face with a creature they claimed was 7 feet tall with large red eyes and a 10-foot wingspan. Swerving around the creature, they attempted to drive away. However, seconds later they found the Mothman was back in front of their car. More frightened than ever, the two married couples headed back to town, traveling at almost 100 miles per hour. All the while, the creature cruised along the ground right behind them and, in some instances, swiftly soaring 50 feet above their car. As the car turned on a farm road, the creature once again managed to block their path. This time, it laid in the road like a lump, resembling a dead dog, as though it were waiting for someone to step out of the car and investigate. Not wanting to fall for what may have been a trap, they backed up and made their way back to town. Later that night, they returned to the farm road, this time with the deputy sheriff. The lump in the road was gone, but they did find a strange pile of dust in its place. Yet, this wasn't the first time someone had actually seen this strange being. On November 12, 1966, gravediggers working in Clendendon claimed to have seen the half-man, half-moth creature flying through the trees just above their heads. In the coming months, reports of Mothman sightings flooded local papers. Many citizens reported hearing noises outside. When they went to investigate, they found the creature's eyes red, glowing in their flashlights. Some residents even blamed the creature for their missing pets. One farmer told the Point Pleasant Register that this German shepherd went missing just after some giant beast with red eyes was seen on his property. Now, wildlife experts believed a sandhill crane to be the most likely culprit. However, it doesn't explain how the bird acquired a taste for dog meat <laughs> or why the sighting of the mysterious Mothman stopped right after the bridge collapse. 
This led many people to believe that the Mothman may have been there to warn the citizens of Point Pleasant. John Keel, who wrote the book The Mothman Prophecies in 1975, claims residents were experiencing precognitions and premonitions that the Silver Bridge was going to collapse. Some cryptozoology theorists even claim that the Mothman had been sighted before many more large-scale tragedies around the globe, even 9-11. To this day, the Mothman remains an unsolved mystery, but a mystery the citizens of Point Pleasant still celebrate once a year in September during the Mothman Festival. They've even erected a statue in the middle of the town right outside the Mothman Museum, making Point Pleasant a great stop on your next road trip. That's awesome. I need to go see that. <laughs> yeah, I want to go to Point Pleasant. I really need to ask my sister if she's ever been there. She lives, her family, they live in uh, West Virginia. That'd be very interesting. Yeah. All right. So I hear that you've got a personal story to tell, something that I've not heard before. I'm very, very interested. I'm on the edge of my seat. Let's hear this thing. So I do. I have a personal encounter that I don't talk about often. When I was younger, my brother and I actually had a personal encounter with a Bigfoot or a Sasquatch out in the woods in Weatherford, Texas, where we used to live. We were probably around fifth or sixth grade, I think. Uh, I really don't talk about this much because it's going to stir up nightmares and it's going to make me look shaky, like jumpy the rest of the week, so don't be, don't be messing with me. This happened back in the day, you know, when we were all kids, we were able to run around all day and just stay gone all day without having to worry about anything. My brother and I would go explore the woods and the fields and the, the creeks around our area. And our parents, you know, they didn't have to worry about getting snatched by a pervert or topped up by a serial killer back then. But it didn't occur to them that some other creature might be out there, something horrible that would strike fear in a grown man, much less the little children that we were. We had a huge field behind our mobile home out there in western Lake Estates. I remember it well, like it was yesterday. On the other side of that field, there were some thick woods, the kind that has briars that you have to fight your way through, and there was no real trail to follow. I don't even know how we got back home. So we were out exploring one day, as we often did, because that was our favorite pastime. On this particular day, we were walking through the creek bed looking for cool rocks and whatnot. We found vines to swing on, cliffs to climb, giant boulders to jump from one to another. We were having a good time. And we started smelling something funky, and it got stronger and stronger as we kept going up that creek bed. I literally froze in my tracks when I saw the biggest dog carcass I had ever seen. It really looked like Marmaduke lying there on the bank of the creek, kind of half in the water and half out. I physically gagged and grabbed my brother's arm and got on the other side of him as far as I could get away from that rotting dog corpse as we went past it. I caught sight of its mouth, which was open wide, with its teeth bared. It, it really looked like it was snarling. Its eyes were hollowed out and black. Most of the flesh was gone except for its face and head. I remember this clearly because it was part of the recurring nightmare that, that I have. We kept walking along, feeling kind of sick. We started pondering on what happened to it. Maybe it was a werewolf that got taken out by a local cowboy with a silver bullet. That's, that's what I was thinking. Or maybe it was a sacrifice made by an evil cult. That's what my brother came up with. So we finally shook it off. We started zigzagging back through the woods towards home. It was in the fall, so there were crunchy brown oak leaves all over the ground, probably a couple inches thick. We started smelling something funky again, and we both caught wind of it at the same time and threw one of those oh crap looks at each other. So we did not want to see another corpse. This smell was different. It was more musty, more putrid. But it was just as bad as that rotting corpse, but still different. We had kept our eyes down watching for snakes because that's what we're taught to do. We started hearing a rustling noise off in the distance. It wasn't a squirrel kind of rustle either. It was something big, and there were also dragging noises. We strained our eyes to look between the thick trees and brush to try to see what was out there. We both caught sight of it at the same time and dropped down behind the brush instantly, terrified and confused. What was that thing? We couldn't figure out what we were looking at it was freaking huge and wide and tall and it was covered in shaggy hair we didn't know what to do but we knew we did not want it to see us so we just froze hunched down behind that bush and it was moving through the woods kind of diagonally in our direction but still kind of ahead of us so we just stayed hunkered down watching just horrified as this thing just kept coming getting closer to us and dragging something along with it and I don't know what was going through my brother's head but I could not figure out what the heck was so big and heavy that this giant creature was having to lean into it to drag it one step at a time. 
whatever it was, it must have been huge. My brother shushed me, and when he went shh, that creature stopped and looked right at us. Our hearts were pounding. I, I bet we both peed in our pants and just didn't admit it. And it seemed like it was staring a hole right through me, and it didn't move for what seemed like forever, and neither did I. Finally, it did take a step to keep moving through the woods, and we could hear that rustle noise, followed by a drag. When it came into the clearing, we were able to see what that dragging noise was. This monster had a hold of a tent. It was dragging a tent somewhere, and it was not an empty tent. It had something in it. We could see the tent. We could see the lumpy shape and the fabric straining as this creature was pulling the tent. It wasn't an empty tent either. It was full of something very lumpy and very heavy. We could see it straining against the tent fabric as the monster kept pulling it forward. I felt sick when I realized that was a tent, and I looked at my brother, and he was white as a ghost, and he actually let out a little high-pitched whimper. When he did, the beast stopped again to listen, and this time it was staring hard in our, dire- our direction, but it also turned towards us, and it dropped the corner of the tent. And it never moved its eyes or its head. It just stared at us as it started taking steps sideways towards the tent. And I don't know if it really saw us, or it, it stared at us as it squatted down beside the tent. This thing had such long arms, it reached all the way across the tent without leaning over at all. It was unreal. It never took its eyes off of us while it stuck its hand inside the opening of the zipper, where it wasn't quite closed all the way. It felt like a horror movie, for real. It it reached inside the tent while never looking at the tent, just staring at us. It, It made the zipper come apart, making a really long zip noise, which was terrifying in the silent woods. It stood up, still staring at us, holding onto the edge of that tent material, and it started raising up the side of the tent. The contents of the tent started rolling towards the opening. It was dumping out whatever was inside that tent onto the ground, like he was trying to show us what was in the tent. I couldn't figure out why it was staring so intensely in our direction. Was he trying to show us what was in the tent? I literally stopped breathing. I wanted to look away because I did not want to see what was in that tent, but I couldn't look away. It seemed like slow motion while this thing stood up. All the stuff inside the tent started rolling towards the opening. He made sure everything came out all the way out onto the ground in front of us. Do you want to know what was inside that tent? Yeah, I want to know what was inside the tent. What was inside the tent? Well, it's, it's not for the faint of heart. It was a huge, tangled, messy pile of just nasty, rotting pieces of bullshit, just like I'm feeding you right now. <laughs> I knew it. You didn't get me. You didn't get me. Nope, didn't happen. Uh-uh. I was going to call bullshit on this thing a long time ago. <laughs> did you did you do that for is that for my sake? Yeah. That's what I thought. I thought I should have thrown some spiders in. I forgot. Yeah, you didn't get me. No. Nope. <laughs> no, I will not admit to that. So how about next we go to northeastern Utah where we talk about Skinwalker Ranch. Mm. Possibly the spookiest place on earth. Now, this article comes from KXAN out of Austin, Texas. For as long as humans have lived in the Uinta Basin, they've been seeing strange things in the sky. In the 1970s, Utah State Professor Frank Salisbury wrote a well-documented book about hundreds of UFO sightings in the basin. But the strangeness goes way beyond mysterious aircraft. For 15 generations, indigenous tribes, including the Utes, have referred to this sandstone ridge as being in the path of the skinwalker. They consider the skinwalker a malevolent spirit and a shapeshifter. The ridge overlooks a picturesque property known around the world by its nickname, Skinwalker Ranch. It easily ranks as the most intensely studied paranormal hotspot in history. Dr. John Alexander retired from Army Intelligence as a colonel and was part of the first scientific study of the ranch under the umbrella of NIDS, the National Institute for Discovery Sciences. NIDS was a think tank created and funded by Las Vegas aerospace entrepreneur Robert Bigelow. After reading a Deseret newspaper story about UFO activity at the ranch, Bigelow flew to Utah, bought the property, and assigned a team of professionals to study the ranch and the basin. The previous owner of the ranch and his neighbors told the NIDS team about the litany of bizarre activity from shadow people appearing in and around the ranch house, poltergeist-type events where physical objects moved on their own, strange animals including huge wolves and sasquatch, and holes in the sky. 
The scientists witnessed much of this for themselves, including animals carved up with surgical precision and ghostly images that appeared on camera. In all, they documented hundreds of paranormal events. Something else is in control, said John Alexander, and if it wants you to find out, it may allow that. But if it doesn't, this thing keeps morphing and changing into, you know, new shapes and forms. The NIDS investigation was conducted in secrecy for years. A 2005 book, Hunt for the Skinwalker, revealed details about the ranch to the world and came to the attention of the Defense Intelligence Agency, DIA. With the support of Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid, the DIA launched its own study of the weird activity at the ranch and a larger issue of UFOs. In all, $22 million was allocated to the research, reams of documents and reports were generated, but have never been made public. In December 2017, the New York Times revealed the Pentagon's secret study of UFOs, but that article made no mention of the far more mysterious encounters at the ranch. Lou Elizondo was the intelligence officer in charge of the Pentagon's program called the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, better known as ATIP. This Pentagon group studied the now-famous UFO videos called Tic Tac, Go Fast, and Gimbal, along with other military encounters. Elizondo coordinated with the DIA and the team studying the ranch. While the strange happenings at the ranch could be considered just a spooky Halloween tale, it also involves national security. Elizondo said, let's take the nature of Skinwalker Ranch out of the equation and just look at it from an intelligence problem. You have to ask yourself, is this something that is occurring naturally? Is it something that is being deliberately done? Is it something that another nation could be behind in trying to influence us? Now, the public got an inside look at the first two scientific studies of the ranch in a 2018 documentary film, Hunt for the Skinwalker. This film helped inspire a television program about the new owner of the ranch, Utah businessman Brandon Fugel, who has financed his own scientific study. Fugel's team has documented the inexplicable activity that is once again spiking in the Uintah Basin. Skinwalker Ranch is as active today as it's ever been. That mm -hmm. is one of my favorites, actually. I love the Skinwalker, Skinwalker stories. Yep, and I really did like that movie that came out, the uh, the documentary movie, Hunt for the Skinwalker. Yeah. It was really good. And I believe there's supposed to be a second one really? to that with the new owners uh, of this place. So, nice. Yeah, it's pretty neat, pretty interesting. I'd love to take a trip up there, but I know that when you do, all you do is get to go up to the to the front uh, gate area, and you can just kind of see, you know, two, 300 yards down, you can start seeing buildings, but you don't see much. It's all private property, and you will not get anywhere, you know, near it. So uh, anyway, it's pretty cool, right? That is cool. All right. So for the last story tonight, we are going to be talking about Bigfoot. We have to. We just have to because he's my favorite. He's my favorite cryptid of, out of all of them. This one is possibly the most terrifying Bigfoot event in history. This story comes to us from Bigfoot Terror in the Woods. Really great podcast. You guys should check that out. No creature was sighted. Some evidence and a police report. In the early 80s, I was living with several other guys in a somewhat communal arrangement somewhere in the Pacific Northwest. I'd rather not give the specifics about exactly where because should my old friend's wife ever read this, it would reopen some very nasty wounds which are better left closed. I had made a friend of a fellow named Charlie. The two of us spent a fair amount of time together racing dirt bikes. We also liked to go shooting. Chuck was a hardcore hunter at heart where I was more into target shooting, not willing to put in the effort and the commitment needed to hunt with Chuck. At any rate, we had a nearby place where someone through the years had dug out a long cut through the earth with a bulldozer. The cut ended with a tall hillside of dirt at the back end of it. Chuck had named it the pit, while I like to call it the shooting gallery. This cut ran downhill at a slight grade, about 400 feet, and the back end, the wall of dirt, was about 40 feet. We had some picnic tables to rest your gun and arms on, and we used to go there to target shoot and sight in our rifles. Well, on September 27, 1981, the weather was turning lousy and it had started to drizzle outside. It was about 4 a.m. when my phone began to ring, and I picked it up. On the other end was Lana, Chuck's wife. Now, they had only one vehicle, and that was Chuck's truck. Lana said that Chuck had gone down to the pit earlier in the day. He was going to sight in his rifles for an upcoming hunt. Six hours had passed and she was getting a little worried about him having not returned. I told her, say no more, Lana. I'm heading over there right now. 
So I jumped in my truck and drove immediately over to the pit to check on Chuck. The pit was about 15 to 20 miles from my house, and by the time I got there, the day was already turning to night. Chuck's truck was parked near the entry area, but Chuck was not visible in the cab, nor did I see him anywhere in the pit, the entirety of which was open to my eyes. I got out of the truck and could see Chuck's gear on one of the tables, and yet no gun and no sign of Chuck either. So I started shouting his name. There was no response, and I have to tell you that I was getting more than a little worried. I suddenly had a really bad vibe that something awful had gone down. That's all I can say. Looking at the back corner of the pit's rear wall, I could see based on the way that the dirt was disturbed that someone had climbed up the dirt wall in the corner. I thought that it was Chuck, who may have climbed up there to do a little squirrel hunting or something of the sort. The rain was coming down heavier as I climbed up the corner myself. Once on top, I was looking around and immediately saw Chuck's hat on the ground. When I walked over to pick it up, the ground surrounding it was soaked in blood. There were large footprints all over the ground, I'm talking about huge, and they appeared to be from some gigantic barefoot human. Call it intuition or whatever you like, but I felt compelled to walk in a certain direction. Within a short distance from the edge of the woods, I came upon Chuck's 30 6 rifle. It was bent in half and laying on the ground. I started screaming his name in every direction and no response was heard. Suspecting foul play, I headed right down to where his truck was parked, only to find more of the same large footprints were surrounding the entire vehicle. Looking into the window and then upon opening the door, I had to try all I could not to heave right there on the spot. I knew that I was looking at Chuck, but it didn't register in my brain at the moment as to exactly what had happened. Chuck was dead. His eyes were bulging out of his sockets. His body had been folded in half backwards and he was stuffed in the front seat under the dashboard on the passenger side of the cab. I started to sob, holding my head while leaning on the hood of his truck. There would be no helping him now. His fate had been sealed. I tried to compose myself and I jumped in my truck to go for help. Keep in mind that this was way before cell phones and there weren't any phone booths out there either, with this pit being in the middle of nowhere. I was racing down the highway at nearly 100 miles per hour when I saw a trooper up ahead. Pulling over, I jumped out of the truck and I ran to him. I could see that the trooper was already startled at my appearance. I told him that there had been a killing, and as I was talking to him, he was already on the radio calling for backup. Leaving my truck on the shoulder of the highway, I jumped into the cruiser and the two of us raced back to the pit. When we got there, another unit was just arriving and a third soon to follow. Nobody could believe what it was that we were looking at. I took two of the officers up the hill to the area where I found his cap and gun. To a man, they had never expected to see what they were now looking at. Chuck and Lana were very good friends of mine, and I knew that the responsibility was mine and mine alone to break this news to her. Now, that was almost 40 years ago, and I still can't break the hold that this events of the day have on my life. At the time, I had never gave much thought to the existence of Bigfoot. But my opinion is now this, Chuck and I had spent 100 hours or more at this pit and never did we once venture into the woods surrounding it. My hunch is this, that day when he arrived, he saw a Bigfoot creature walking along the top of the wall. He chambered around in his rifle and he took the shot. I think that after taking the shot, he climbed up on top of the hill expecting to see his trophy. But in a cruel twist of fate, the beast, not being dead, got the jump on him, and killed him instead. Then, in a final act of vengeance, the Bigfoot bent up his gun and shoved his body in the most gruesome fashion under the dashboard of his truck. I have long since moved from that area of the country, but I keep in touch with Lana to this very day. She has remarried and has three children. Thankfully, she has never seen the condition that Chuck was in. Neither I nor the police told her. It was reported that he had been killed, presumably by a bear, and that's the way the whole affair ended. I never go into the woods anymore in any remote areas, and if you were to ask me, I would tell you, you shouldn't either. That is the stuff nightmares are made of. Right. Did Und you say that was true? It is true, and understand that I changed all the names. Actually, actually, uh, Bigfoot Terror in the Woods changed all the names, and then I changed them again. <laughs> uh, and then also, um, you know, I left out lots of the other things like the police report and all that sort of thing. I uh, just, just wanted to tell the story, but yeah, that actually happened. Could it have been a bear? No. I mean, really? 
bears don't have opposable thumbs, so I'm not exactly hurt. A bear's not going to bend a rifle in half. Bend a rifle in half or even grab it and bang it into a tree to break it in half. I, I, I guess a human could do that, but how could a human... Take a take a person's body, bend it in half, and shove it inside of a truck. Mm-mm. It just doesn't it doesn't make any sense. <clears throat> something was something very terrifying happened up there at the pit. That may be the worst story I've ever heard. Yep. So you know you you got a lot of these people out there that you know that they're looking for Bigfoot and they they think of Harry and the Hendersons and how it's going to be all goofy and funny and they're going to give it a big hug and they're going to give it some pizza, you know. But um, those of us who believe in Bigfoot and Bigfoot like creatures know that this is a very dangerous, wild animal. I almost want to throw away I love Bigfoot shirt. No, I <laughs> still love Bigfoot. I almost want to Bigfoot. throw away my I love Bigfoot shirt. <laughs> you know, if you ask me, though, Bigfoot was all it was in the right. If, if, if the story happened the way that he said, and they ventured into its area and he shot at it, I'm sorry, but that's self-defense. self-defense. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I still love Bigfoot. Okay, so this is going to take us to the end of the show. My Prepper brothers and sisters, thank you so much for joining us on our first annual OGTX Prepper Survival Show's Halloween special. Rhonda and I love to engage in stories and legends of cryptids, monsters, and the paranormal. If you're like us, you don't wait until Halloween each year to enjoy listening to stories and encounters of your favorite boogeyman. For us, High Strangeness is a year-round affair. Stay prepped, stay happy, thanks for listening, and good night. The OG Chicks team would like to thank all of you for being here with us tonight. Send your questions, comments, show ideas, and thoughts to shtf at offgridtx.com. We'd love to hear from you guys, good, bad, or indifferent. shtf at offgridtx.com. Visit our site at offgridtx.com. That's offgridtx.com. I am Camel Keith. This is the OGTX Prepper Survivalist Show, and we are Offgrid Texas. Prepping, surviving, living, thriving. <laughs>